10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 3rd of October and we have the best conversations coming your way. What are microaggressions? Does systemic racism exist in our schools? And how can we move forward to ensure greater equality within our profession? These are sensitive issues we're tackling today. You have been warned. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London. This is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. We're introducing the wonderful Adrian Rollins today. Adrian is a former professional cricket player who came into teaching over 18 years ago as a sports coordinator. He completed a maths degree and is now a deputy head for an academy and has expertise in both maths and PE. Adrian spoke out about systemic racism within our profession earlier this year and was in mainstream media for it too. We're discussing microaggressions and how we as a profession can deal with them and move forward together in a united way. We'll come back to Adrian soon. Good morning, everyone. Um, I've got Adrian on the line. Adrian, good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Yeah. Okay, right. Adrian, um, not many people uh, who are listening today may know who you are. Could you just explain your journey up to now, please? Well, uh, teaching is my, my second profession. So my first profession is, I mean, I was born and raised in East London. Uh, primarily a single parent family. My mum, uh, many people may know, so my mum is uh, Marva Rollins OBE, who was a head teacher for, well, virtually 25 years in, in London. She was the first black um, head teacher in the London Bar of Newham, and then she became the first black head teacher in the London Bar of Enfield. Um, so she was in the profession for, for more than 30 years and as a head teacher for, for virtually 25 years. Um, so I'm her eldest son, one eldest of three boys. Uh, but my first career, I didn't follow my mum into education. My first career was as professional sport. So I played professional cricket for uh, 10 years, uh, primarily for Derbyshire County Cricket Club and um, then latterly for Northampshire County Cricket Club. Got injured, um, had to retire uh, through injury and then um, started in education where my initial role was as a school sports coordinator working for Luton Borough Council. Um, and at that time, I hadn't had my degree. I was working, did my open university degree part time in maths and education. Uh, when I completed my degree, I did my maths teacher training and have now been in profession near, nearly 19 years. Um, I'm currently deputy head of school at a secondary in the East Midlands. That sounds great. And um, in terms of, obviously, you said your mother was an educator. Um, did you pick up anything from her? Yeah, yeah, I picked up a lot. Uh, there's, there's a few teachers in my family 
But uh, yeah, I picked up a lot from her. When I mean, she trained in primary, and uh, when she was doing her teacher training, she, she didn't do it straight away. She started that when I was ten. So uh, when she was doing her displays and and stuff like that, me and my brothers were were helping her do those, and we spent a lot of time after school because her first school that she worked at was probably ten minutes walk away maximum from the secondary school we attended in Newham. Um, so we'd often go and see her after school. So we were quite we were learning, kind of learning the ropes at an early age and uh, I mean she qualified when I was 15 so um, yeah so yeah I was around around that and watched my mum develop and grow from a you know an outstanding teacher to a, an outstanding head teacher so that I that had a big influence on, on my career choice post post cricket. Well, that sounds fascinating that you actually had a role model as you were growing up to see um, exactly what could be achieved, you know, walking into a profession like ours. Um, So we're going to be talking about a sensitive topic today. And it's something that a lot of people have mentioned to me, um, as I was saying to you earlier before we started this show. Um, I have had colleagues mention it to me in the past um, and in not just in the schools that I'm working in, but the schools that I've been working in for the last 16 years within the profession. Um, uh-huh. What are microaggressions, uh, in your opinion? Well, I mean, microaggressions are situations that you face where, you know, nobody's, you know, even these days outside of, you know, when, you know, professional sportsmen perform badly and you get it in the crowd and sport or, you know, you do get it in social media. But microaggressions are often where people are show that aggression towards you and you know there's a, a bigger connotation than them not liking you and without any real reason for, for not liking you or not liking what you do or not appreciating uh, what you do. And then you know that the undertone is um, is race. And it's not, you know, we're not talking about, you know, because people like to use the reference of chipping your shoulder and all that kind of stuff. And it's got nothing to do with that. It's about the fact that when people see you, they have, a, to me, a, an immediate expectation of how you are and how you're supposed to be. And if you display any behaviour that is contrary to what they would like you to, what bots they'd like to put you in, all of a sudden you'd be subjected to, you know, to microaggressions about, about things that unless say all of a sudden you, you wanted to do your job and people are getting in the way of doing your job because just because and just because of you know you're not supposed to behave like that you know I'm in charge and that's not that's not acceptable it's, and you know it's it's uh, those you know it's funny the word microaggressions because even though we know the term microaggression but the impact is huge because you know, through most of, you know, forgetting teaching or even, you know, in my in professional sport was subjected to uh, racism. And before that, you know, before I was at school, when wherever, you know, those those things can uh, accumulate and have real impact on, on how you see yourself and uh, how you carry yourself. And, you know, a lot of people go around quite apprehensive and very concerned about how they behave because they're worried about how they're perceived. I mean, I could even note the other week I I went into a, a hardware store and uh, I was followed around a hardware store. And I thought, well, you know, gone are the days of being a professional cricketer, so they weren't after my autograph. <laughs> you know, so I'm a six foot five black man and there was a presumption that I was uh, going to take something, and which was ridiculous. 
and yeah, I mean, I can understand that story because I remember a few years ago, Leona Lewis, the singer from X Factor, mm-hmm. she said a similar story where she went into a store and she could feel and sense vibes straight away from um, the woman or the owner of the store who, uh, you know, made it very clear that she wasn't welcome. And the same thing happened to her as well. So it is very real. Um, if I just go through what some people have said. So Kevin Nadal, who's a psychologist, professor defines microaggressions as everyday subtle intentional and oftentimes unintentional interactions or behaviors that communicate some sort of bias towards historically marginalized groups so basically they're slights and they describe it as deaths by a thousand paper cuts and as you were saying earlier it affects people's mental spiritual emotional and even physical health at times because it leaves them feeling upset offended or uncomfortable um and it's this kind of deep, deeply rooted biases against those who are different to us. And you mentioned race as one of the microaggressions, like one of the underlying themes of a microaggression. Um, but it's not just race, <coughs> is it? What types of other microaggressions are there? Oh, you can have sexism, your, your religion. If you may just take the, you know, the protected characteristics, you know, the protected characteristics under the Equality Act of 2010 and, you know, there, there are various um, aggressions, whether it's uh, gender, sexuality, and then you've got the combination, haven't you? So whether you're, you're an ethnic minority and female, ethnic minority and male, ethnic minority female and of a certain religion. So there's, you know, essentially it's just, you know, the bias or, you know, these kind of pre-existing ideas of what you are or what you stand for, whether positive or negative. And it's just, or particularly negative, and it's uh, around those stereotypes and then how then people act towards you and, the, and whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And I often query the the notion of unconscious bias. I mean, I'm, I think you've got to be pretty ignorant to to show bias and not know you're showing bias or that's just because you've been comfortable showing that bias for a long time. Um, and that's interesting because some people claim they're not even aware of them until they're confronted with them. And I think the most important thing is how we choose to respond once we're made aware of those biases. Because, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this because obviously I, I had to do research for the show. And before that, a lot of people have discussed it with me. Uh, and I'm sitting there thinking that it's not always just a case of, you know, white people doing it to ethnic minorities. Sometimes ethnic minorities do it to each other as well, because we all have got these biases towards uh, <coughs> different races, genders, age. Um, it's also socioeconomic classes. It's also disability, mm-hmm. religion, like you said. Um So it could be intersectional, like you said, across race, gender, disability, loads of different things happening at the same time. It just made me very, very aware that even me, I could be somebody who has these biases because, you know, essentially we all have over 100 biases ourselves. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree. I mean, uh, my family's from Barbados and uh, often... Uh, say for example, uh, I'm not going to say which island, but they they often refer to us as smally, being as in a small island. Okay. And uh, even in the Caribbean, there's bias. And then, uh, you know, I I recall even growing up, there were there were sometimes experiences where um, where people from I mean, I'm, even though Afro Caribbean, but people say from Africa would not, would some some people would say that we were not 
we were not pure thing because we were, you know, descended from slaves, etc., etc. And that's not everybody, far from it. Uh, but that's, you know, you do have even within a race, you have you have uh, biases, and within within different cultures, you have, you know, where you've got subcultures and you've got biases. So, you know, they exist. And the key thing for me is about education around that and being aware of, you know, you can't, you know, the, the sensitivities and understand that there are sensitivities around things that you say and do. Yeah, and it's quite. I mean, what you've just described is actually quite distressing because if I'm, if I was sitting there thinking I'm a child and I'm growing up in that environment, like you said, as you become an adult and you're constantly hearing this negativity and these, you know, slight insults towards you, but you know, not it, it does affect you um, in terms of self-esteem and well-being. Um, in terms of microaggressions at work, how do they manifest in the workplace? And have you ever seen it happen in the classroom as well? Well, in the workplace, it, it can it happen. It can happen in many forms. Just um, you could be in a meeting, and your your opinion is almost uh, dismissed, or because it's not of any value, because you're not of any value, and people aren't going to say that. But um, the response that you might get to that, whether it's, you know, because you just, you know, it's almost like, who are you to even have an opinion? You know, and that, that can happen. You know, that can happen frequently. And like I said, that can depend on wherever you are under the protected characteristics. And within the classroom, it, it, it can be variable. I, I think as a, as a classroom teacher, you may feel that you're facing challenges in the classroom and they're not being necessarily dealt seriously by by the people who line manage you. And also you could see that like um, perhaps in my role now, but I'm not definitely not the school I'm at, but um, you may, you may have the experience where, you know, people are observing your lesson as a teacher and then, and there are certain interactions that are going on in the classroom where they're perceived one way by the people who are observing you compared to how you're dealing with those. So it's just that, that real, just understanding, and also as a teacher, uh, say from an ethnic minority background, how some students may behave towards you, and then what happens there, because I've had those experiences where I've had some real overt, it's not even microaggressions really, overt racist incidents in the classroom, and where people more senior than me who are not from the same background don't necessarily understand how cutting that is, and then therefore I must try and brush it under the carpet and dismiss that as well. So it's that... It's, it, there's so many different angles within education and everywhere because there's so many different layers. I mean, ultimately, education is about what goes in in the classroom because that's what's the biggest impact for the children. But as we know, in education, you've got the, you've got class, you've got people with TLRs, you've got people with UPRs, you've got senior members of staff. And, you know, ideal, the ideal model is that everyone's working together and moving forward for the same goal, goal for all students. But in order to understand, have that, you need to understand your, your students, you need to understand your staff. And that's um, sometimes a... A difficult thing for people to accept and acknowledge. Yeah, I mean that is quite scary what you've said because some of the things that you're discussing, I recognise that, and that for me is quite shocking because I'm sitting here and I'm going to now have to go away and reflect on some of the things you've said. Um, we've had a caller message in the 30 year old teacher who says it makes you feel paranoid as a teacher. They started to doubt their own abilities because people do make you question your own abilities when this is going on, don't they? Yeah, they do, and. 
I think the understanding within education and all, I would say, a lot of workplaces and a lot of areas in industry and web is understanding that when you take on any members of staff with respect to a background, they come with it. They come with a story. They come with a background. And you need to, and, and, that, and the key thing is to understand each individual member of staff or as a group of staff and understand their background. And for some of us, uh, you know, we can, you know, we, we come into situations which people don't understand because when you have these kind of microaggressions or these series of events, you can often find yourself entering a workplace with like a, like a PTSD. And that's, you know, so therefore when you do act in certain environments, you're, you're almost consciously looking over your shoulder where, where often you may not have to do that, but in some places you do have to do that. And there's that lack of understanding or perhaps people are not willing to understand that because they then revert to, well, you know, you're being paranoid, but not understanding where that, that feeling comes from, because that's a lifetime experience. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It's a, it, obviously, it's a, it's a massive topic um, on LinkedIn and industry at the moment. Um, if I just go through some stuff, so for example, you could get verbal microaggressions, and that's mm-hmm. when someone says something offensive or disrespectful to a marginalised group. So for example, if you have got a lesbian co-worker and you ask them who is the man in your relationship, that would be regarded as a microaggression. And I know what you're saying. Sometimes you can't even believe that some people are doing this, but it happens, not just in schools, but within society, in industry. It's happening there as well. Um, Deliberately mispronouncing someone's name because it's too difficult or shortening Mm -hmm. it is also an issue. Complimenting someone's English under the assumption they weren't born and raised in an English-speaking country is another one. So these are all verbal microaggressions. Then we move on. Sorry, Adrian. Yep, I understand. I I can uh, recall uh, um, uh, a situation where I overheard, and I didn't overhear because it definitely wasn't supposed to be within my shot, uh, a uh, member of staff talking to another member of staff about a about a, a teacher saying, you know, it, it might be difficult for the students to to understand her because um, she's not from England. I overheard that, and that's just utterly ridiculous. I took that member of staff to one side, and because uh, I was in a position to, and had um, very clear words with them around that, and they said it didn't mean it like that, but I said, but that's exactly what you meant. So these things happen more often than not um and it's 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 quite harrowing i mean like like you said earlier i think people like these people have a hundred biases and sometimes our biases are but you know a lot of people's biases are based upon their experience as well and um and often you know nobody's born with bias you know but uh, you know often people are, are raised to have them and it's quite scary how often it does happen because obviously we've yeah. discussed the verbal, but there's also behavioural. So, for example, you know, when you mistake an ethnic minority for a service or an admin worker rather than them having professional qualifications and being either the head teacher or, the, you know, the, the main teacher of the classroom, you know, the, people get mistaken for the roles that they're in. Um, it could be against females when you're constantly told to smile more or it could be the assumption that older co-workers are unable to use technology. 
And then you've got environmental aggressive uh, microaggressions where there's a lack of representation, inclusion and diversity in certain roles. And within education, that's evident in senior leadership teams. Um, and excluding people from those senior positions. Um, and it could be something like uh, disability, not offering accessible facilities. And all of this kind of creates a toxic work culture, which kind of corrodes employee engagement. I mean, Adrian, have you had any? What, how, and when did they occur? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of them was uh, kind of, identified in the in the article in the guardian um yeah you it's i think that the hardest thing is when you have these these experiences it takes you back i mean i'm a child from the 70s so um in the 1970s i think things were pretty much in my face uh, when it came to racism so um, I recall a, a situation in a classroom where I had, going back to classroom, had an incident with a student where he said something to me that was really blatantly or difficult to deal with. But then in terms of, if we look at, say, environmental, um, I recall um, applying for a, uh, a role with a responsibility and being um, shown around a school and the then VP of that school was asking me questions around would I be comfortable working in the school because there were there were not that many non-white students there, and it's just those experiences make you almost a bit like like going back to like ninety seven to me, kid. What did you just say? And the the reality of it is is that there are people who are either I mean we call it conscious bias or unconscious bias. You have people who are just willfully ignorant or unwillfully ignorant. And life is about education. Our job as educators is to develop and grow the students, but it's also to develop and grow each other. And the problem that we have in edu- that we can find in education in, with some staff is that when they think they've got it. So I know how to deal with this. I know how I know absolutely everything. So therefore, I cannot be told about anything, and I'm not willing to be open to learn anymore. And that is the, I think that is the challenge that that we often face yeah I mean I remember one of the it is a challenge because I remember when I went to uh, work in the school um, in Lewisham and this was when I was a, a supply teacher and before that um, my experience with um, racism I'd hardly had any to be quite honest I was quite fortunate because I was quite a confident person and so very assertive and made sure that I was treated with respect but I went into this school as a supply teacher and I remember the head teacher saying to me in the interview how do you feel working on this side of the river because he was trying to insinuate that obviously I'm from East London, that East Lus- sorry East London wasn't as good as the area that I was going into. So yeah. I immediately understood that straight away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the way that I dealt with that was continue to be pleasant to him. Um, I secured my interview, secured my contract, and through my actions, modelling the behaviour I expected from that head teacher, I earned his respect. And so I think I think I definitely agree with you that there is an element where people think it's humorous and they think it's funny, but it's actually it's not. It's kind of sneaky and shady in a way. Um, 
And it does affect people. I mean, what are the consequences of these microaggressions? Well, ultimately, when you have them, it, it's, it, affects your, it can affect your confidence because, you know, a lot of us who ed- enter education or any field, I mean, I can go back to professional sport. When you enter it, you think it's a, the, the ideal model is that you're working in an environment where everyone's working together for the common cause. But then people come with their biases and then that gets in the way of the, the job. And ultimately, the job of any educational establishment is for the children in that establishment to achieve the best thing possible. Yes, leave with as well around the but to help them become the best that they can, educationally, socially, morally, emotionally. And that's the role. And that's your primary purpose for walking through a school gate is when people have their, um, their you know, dealing with, have this, these ego, think that you know, the job is about their ego. That's what always, then you invariably get the incidents that you have, the, the, the trauma that happens in schools amongst staff, which is unnecessary. And then it just, it just snowballs out of there. And then you, you might leave one school where you've had that experience. You go to another school, we have a similar experience. You go to the next one, a similar experience. And then all of a sudden you just become a bit, well, you, 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 just, you just want to leave. And then ultimately the reason why you might, you came into profession, you know, that's even for all that that you want to do and all that you want to achieve for those children, you think, oh, I don't, I just don't need this and I don't deserve this. And so therefore you leave. And that's, and that's the, that's the distress. That's the level of distress that it, that it, that it does cause many. I nearly left. Um, I'm not gonna say what year, but there was a year where I, that year when that identified in that article in the Guardian, I nearly left the profession because I just had enough. Uh, and it was only through conversations, regular conversations with mum, having someone who's, who's obviously been there, imagine being the first black head teacher in two London boroughs. And um, without that kind of influence and that mentoring, I, would have, I wouldn't be teaching now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I feel sorry when I hear these stories. I actually feel genuinely disgusted with the way that things are happening within our profession because, like you said, we all came into the profession to make a change. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, one of the reasons I came into the profession was because I wasn't happy with the education that I was provided with um, because I do feel like I could have been pushed uh, further than what you know I had uh, achieved in my life and I did get to a stage where in my profession I did feel like I needed a break as well because of some of the issues that we have to go through it's a very stressful profession but Mm -hmm. it, it is distressing to think that our ethnic minority staff who are fantastic role models who've chosen this wonderful profession to have their performance, their sense of belonging, uh, their current and future development really <laughs> in jeopardy by people who are just not very nice people. Um, and it affects retention as well. I mean, you know, the profession has lost so many good quality teachers and there's no alarm bells ringing. It just seems really, really strange to me. Yeah, it does seem strange, but I think that the thing that's, I think, equally harrowing is that this isn't just happening in education. It's just that we wouldn't expect it to happen in education because our role is building, you know, people who are going to run us, run our country, run our businesses, run, run our schools and everything in the future. So you wouldn't expect within those institutions for these things to happen. And that's, I think that's the, 
the, the the primary distress for a lot of people, and it's just it's just not fair. It's just not fair. How to kind of deal with that? And there's this multiple layers and m- multiple ways to deal with it. Um, yes, we need more. I mean, the stats don't lie. We need more people from where we call it global majority minor to ethnic backgrounds in leadership positions. We also need people in governorship. And that's one thing I do either talk to people who are staff or, or um, just parents to need, if you want to know how a school is run and what's affecting your child's education, then you need to, you need to get into governorship. There's a, a real lack of diversity in governorship, probably even, even more so, even more of a problem than there is in school leadership. And I just, I just think it's the, it's just understanding that this is a, it's a build up because this is life. And, but life in a school environment, life in an educational institution should be about the children. And the problem is, is that it's, it's, it's often not about that. Like I said earlier, when ego gets in the way, that's when the, the, the real problems ensue. Um, I've had some comments come in, Adrian. Um, the thirty-year-old teacher says, in general, I found children to be respectful. It's a completely different story with staff. Um, and as Adrian mentioned, it's how it's dealt with. If you feel confident enough to report the issue, then do it. If it doesn't seem to be dealt with, then it should be. Otherwise, um, you know, you could end up having poor excuses such as personality clashes and other issues that aren't uh, aren't true. Um, and then TSCW has mentioned sometimes microaggressions happen in front of students. Um, mm-hmm. This person was in a situation last week and the member of staff who is senior to them said something very uncomfortable. It was in a conversation in class and they were on a task um, and she she or he was very conscious that one of them might have heard and the staff member would not have even realised what they did was wrong because they weren't deliberately being obtuse. However, this person didn't feel comfortable to challenge it in the moment, but not doing so made them feel awkward because the students mm-hmm. did hear it and they were seen as being complicit in the staff member's actions. So yeah. lots of teachers are, are messaging in right now. Um, somebody else has said we're encouraged to report it it's how it's dealt with after um, and unfortunately what Adrian is telling us is what teachers are experiencing um, and if student had if students had done the same thing in the lesson they would have corrected their behavior and explained why it would be expen- why it would be offensive um, I've got a question from a, a, a listener. Have you had experiences challenging staff with biases and how did they respond? <laughs> yes. I mean, that was the, the basis of the article in the, in the Guardian and that was challenging upwards. So I had to challenge the... It was I had experienced a, a real overt racist incident uh, from a student. I didn't think it was dealt with appropriately. It was almost virtually brushed under the carpet. I wasn't happy about it. I, I, in an email, a very professional said to a teacher, I wasn't happy about it. And they responded by, uh, it was about approximately 10 months of pure just harassment and just negativity. I couldn't do anything right. Anything. Couldn't hold an assembly properly. Didn't give those things out to those students properly. Didn't give eye contact on this. Didn't do that right. It was, it was absolutely ridiculous to the point where I, I was, um, put on an informal support plan in inverted commas, which was, I think it lasted all, 
where I was going to be mentored by a member of staff, uh, my informal support plan must have lasted about 15 minutes because in my first meeting with that member of staff, by the time I finished explaining what my strategic plans or what my plans were for that year, um, for what I was leading on, uh, it was, yeah, he, he was a bit dumbfounded because uh, it's, uh, I guess the coaching is over then. Uh, so it was, you know, dealt, what it does, I mean, I responded, you know, they responded aggressively. Um, and I did see one of the things in the, in the chat about keeping under the radar. I didn't keep under the radar. I did my job and I focused on the students and I focused very well, but I did challenge upwards. And then I, I knew, I knew that I had to move on and I knew that I had to leave, but I was going to leave on my terms, not on their terms. And so, and that takes, you know, quite a bit of strength to do that because, you know, the first, you know, it was really distressing. But once I got my head focused on what I was there for, I remember the fact that the students, like, like I said, the students were, were, apart from that student with that incident, generally the students were really, really good. And uh, so my focus was on them. And that probably made the head even more distressed because I wasn't focused on, on them. I was focused on the student. So, yes, aggression happens. Yes, people do what they do because how dare you, you know, and that's where the migrant, how dare you, and it is you, challenge my authority. You know, I, it, was a, it was a professional uh, thing. I, I made a query about the sanction, but it's how dare you, you know, and it, and it was very obvious that it was how dare you because there were other colleagues um, who had, not similar, but had incidents involving racism and they were not dealt with either. Um, but they just, they just, they definitely didn't take it on the chin, but they, they moved on. Uh, yeah, so... I, I agree with you where, you know, I've had colleagues who I've seen it happen to as well and they're just literally either encouraged to move on or they stay under the radar. And I remember when I first joined the profession, and this was like going back 17 years now, so bear in mind this been a, it's been over a decade, almost two decades. Yeah. Um, and I never understood when I saw ethnic minority leaders in a senior leadership position or even at middle leaders, I never understood why they looked so upset or they didn't look like they were engaged. And it's not until I went through the system myself that I realised by the time you get to that stage where you're supposed to be enjoying and reaping the rewards of your career for the amount of effort and time and commitment and dedication you've given to service um, for your communities, you're exhausted because of everything that you're seeing and everything that you're going through. I now get it. Yeah. Yeah, it is exhausting. It's like the reference I said, PTSD. It is exhausting to have to constantly almost like defend yourself or consciously look over your shoulder or like just consistently, constantly just thinking how are they perceiving what I'm saying or am I, you know, what are they watching me? You know, and that's, you know, that is absolutely, it can be exhausting. I've not had that in every environment, far from it. But I'm saying when you're in those environments, how it can make you feel. And um, I've had that in professional sport as well. <laughs> as well and that's there's no hiding place there because I've you know I've been on a on a on a cricket field where a section of the crowd have told me what they thought of me and it wasn't because I was playing for the opposition. So um you know it's 
those things, when they happen, it is really, really difficult. And like I said, it's not every environment, but when you're in those environments, you feel it is emotion. It can be emotionally crushing. And, well, yeah, and, and because I mean, like for example, Marcus Rashford and his pals when they lost the football tournament, um, and the amount of abuse they got on Twitter from people afterwards—that's just reflective of our society right now, isn't it? I mean, this was yeah. happening in the eighties. Have we progressed, or have we just gone backwards? I think those who have had those biases will have will will probably have those biases until they die unless it's addressed. I think what, one thing I'm noticing now, because um, social media, there's a kind of two-way, um, there's a kind of two-pronged kind of response to these things. So you have the the Euro Championships and we had the aggression from people who were basically, well, they, they were not, they didn't just become racist, they were racist. They just, but they thought they were in a safe space on social media we had those footballers. Um, I can't remember whichever club it was. I think it was Crystal Palace. I can't. I don't want to say the wrong club, but um, or Portsmouth. I can't remember now. But there was a club where these young men on a social media platform, whether it's WhatsApp, were were being really disrespectful. Where people think they're in a, sp- a safe space to be, you know, overtly racist. And what happens is they're losing their jobs. People are picking up in it. They're being challenged uh, in in those areas, and it's affecting their careers. And do I have sympathy, sympathy with those people? Not really, no. And, and that's not being harsh. But the reality is, if people have been saying this in the open, think about the impact they've had on so many people in their careers, particularly in a position of influence where they can either be helping develop people or stifling their development through their biases. Um, it just means they have to go away and learn. But it, it, it just simply has to stop. And social media, I mean, we can see there's certain... Uh, personalities or uh, famous people who have been overtly, in my mind, overtly racist on public platforms and are being challenged, but there are people who are still defending them. And then I've, sometimes that, the reason why it's too prone because it's some, to me, often it's better the devil you know than that you don't know. I think it's a reminder to people that it still exists and all this I don't see colour. Um, you know, just put, just part that, please. Just part that, please. I'm six foot five and I'm black. If you cannot see a six foot five black man walking through a door when you comes into a room and I'm broad shouldered, then I'm sorry. You, you know, then you, you're, you're blind. You know, you you will see it. You do see it and you will see it. Now, how you respond to that, how you deal with that, that's a different thing altogether. And I think that's where people are confused. And the I don't see color. There are many people who will, you know, who will support who have supported me in my career, who are white, who are very supportive. And, and there are many people in my career who see me and say, you know, there's a person with potential. I'm going to help develop them. But there's also many people saying, well, we're not having him here. You know, that's not the image of what we was we want for our organisation. You know, and that happens because we're in, a, we're in a society where it happens. And... Again, it's like these are people who are being overtly racist. And I'm just going to pick up on a, on something you've just said. When I see you, I don't see colour. You mentioned that comment. And what, again, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, say this and stress this. When I was doing my research and I've always said to my students, um, uh, you know, I've said to my friends, not my students, I've said to my friends that, you know, when I'm teaching, I don't see colour. Um, I'm, I'm quite a fair person. And 
in my head whilst I was doing this, I sat there thinking, well, actually, I've just kind of been conditioned to say and think the same things as what other people are saying. So things like when I see you, I don't see colour. We are all one race. Everyone can succeed if they work hard enough. Those are things which are negating these very real interactions that are taking place, which are affecting our society. How can someone overcome this anger and injustice if they've seen or witnessed or even had these things done to them? Or, for example, one classic example is when people who aren't working as hard have been promoted, uh, especially people who are lazy, Mm-hmm. either through nepotism or by stepping on someone else through these things such as microaggressions? How how can someone overcome these things? I think first and foremost, when you see those things, they're going to upset you and accept, let it, they accept you because sometimes people say, oh, I'm let it go or uh, get over it or let it be. I mean, you, the thing is you can't do anything about it because it, it happens. And it happens, like I said, in all walks of life, it, it happens. I think that ultimately, when it comes to those situations, firstly, your primary focus is to have, have peace with yourself and make peace with yourself. And then you have to make a decision because you either stay in that environment where you know that's going on, where you know it's toxic, where you know that those biases are there, or you move on. And we all have that choice. You know, teach, the, the, the great thing about teaching I mean, I've taught in Luton, I've taught in Northampton, I've taught in London, I've taught in Derby, I've taught in Nottingham, I've taught, you know, you know, and I've been fortunate to do international schools program and, and visit Africa, visit Australasia. So, you know, we have we have the opportunity to work in, in various environments. And often we, obviously, there's external things we think about our children, we think about our families and where we're living and where we're growing up and how far do we need to go. I do, I, I 100% get that. But we have a choice. And when we see those things, you know, and when we see them and we identify them and we see it constantly going on, we have a choice. We either stay in that environment or we move on. And it may happen that you move on to another environment and the same thing happens. That's, I can, I totally understand that. I, I totally get that. But we still have a choice and it's really difficult and it is difficult when things aren't happening fairly, where people may, may you may feel people are being elevated who are lazy. I've seen that. I've seen that as well or people who have not necessarily put in the work that you're putting in. I, you know, I, I 100% get that. But then ultimately we, ha- we have a choice and we need, to, we need to own that part of it and we know that we have a choice. And therefore, as much as it's not fair, we have to do what's fair to, for us. And, and we need to have that mindfulness and that self-awareness that say, you know, I don't deserve this. This is not acceptable. I'm not willing to accept this. Now, there are certain things that you, you, you will stand your ground and you mess... 100% must challenge up with. But when it comes to, say, people being, like, internally being promoted ahead of you and you know they've not put in the work, and you're not going to, you're not, um, you've got to pick your battles. You're not going to get anywhere of that. When you're talking about real injustice where someone's trying to pull you up on a disciplinary or, or some kind of rubbish, you challenge upwards. Certain things you've got to pick and choose. And that doesn't mean you're ignoring or walking away, but you've got to look after yourself. Your, well, your own well-being is as important as every student's well-being that you're there to help. And the colleagues that you do work really well with. And you've got to think about that and be conscious about that. So I think when you're in those environments or just us within the profession, you have to find those moments where you have 
quiet reflection. Like Sunday's my time where I just have some quiet reflection about the week, about how things have gone, how things I'm going to go for the week coming up, what my plans are, whatever they are, and how, how I'm feeling within myself in order for me to think about how I'm going to make this week progress. We have to make that, we have to make those decisions. If we're truly not happy and it's truly unfair, then you just have to, you have to make a decision. Because I remember my mum said something to me once years ago, and it's always stuck. You said you could be a victim or a volunteer, but you can't be both. And that's, and that's not, that's, that's not knocking what our experience is because there are times we are clearly victims. And when we are victims of these situations, we really have to think about our own wellness and therefore, what are we going to what are we going to do about that, and how we need to get out of those toxic environments? But if we stay in there, we know that it's bad, and we, we're going to stay there, and we're going to hopefully think that it changes. Then, and, and we but deep down we know it's not going to change. Then what 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 are we doing? What are we doing? We've got to make that choice. And so. My next question is basically if we, there are people who say that, you know, microaggressions, we're making strong claims, but there's inadequate evidence for these. Are people who complain about microaggressions being too sensitive? <laughs> no, 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 they're not being too sensitive because, it, because the, the experience, whether it's in school, whether it's, at, whether it's when we go to the shops, whether it's in your previous careers, those experiences are lived experiences. And for many of us, it's from birth. And it's not just to do with race. Like I said, we talked about religion, whether it's uh, gender, wh- whatever it is, you know, disability. These are lived experiences. So it's not sensitivities. People are sensitive about things. There are some, th- some things that sometimes I might be oversensitive about, but not necessarily to, not to do with my race or anything. It might be certain things because I'm a single father raising my children. And I'm sure my kids would say I'm... Pr- being a bit oversensitive about some of their behaviours, not so much now, perhaps a few years ago. So there are some things that we might be overset, we might deem to be oversensitive because we're human beings and we're evolving and we're thinking, you know what, perhaps I didn't tackle that that particular thing that well. I could do this better when we're constantly reflecting. But we're not oversensitive about about um, prejudice. You can't be oversensitive about prejudice because when you experience prejudice, it's because it's not right and it's not fair. And when it's not right and it's not fair. I'm not quite sure how else you're supposed to respond to that. Are you supposed to say, well, it's okay, you could just, you know, you could not promote me because, you know, you could see me as a, as this and therefore you don't think the job is for me. Like, invariably happens. Um, I can say that being a black male, um, often we can be pigeonholed into being really good heads of year, particularly in inner city, multicultural schools, because you're really good with those. You're really good with those challenging black boys. So you'll, you'll, you'll help them. So you'll be a great head of year. Oh, senior leadership? No, 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 no. That, this is this is where you're comfortable, you know, and that is just not acceptable. But if we choose to accept it, then we've got to think, no, that's that that's not acceptable. So we've got we do have a choice, and it's not it's not something that you just say, oh well, and you're not being oversensitive. But we then got to recognise we've got a choice, and also an add into that, in order for the choice for us to elevate and perhaps push into senior positions and headships, we've also got to invest in ourselves. And when you experience so much trauma um, in our lives, sometimes we can forget to invest in ourselves um, in terms of programs that help us do, uh, you know, the right applications uh, for assistant head, for deputy head, for headship, and realize that there are a network of people out there to help us and to develop us to ensure that we get those things right. Because I know, because in my role, I have, um, I've also been a governor, I've appointed a head teacher as a, go- a governor. I've looked at some applications and I'm thinking that is just not strong enough. 
you know, and we need to, and on most, on very late, just keep work together to ensure that even though we may, we know we have the skill base, we know we have the abilities, let's have a look, let's work together to build those supporting statements, to, to build the things to make sure that we get in front of that panel. Because the first point of trying to get elevated is to actually get in front of them. And then the next stage is to make sure that you're doing enough self-development around interview practice, around those core tasks that, for example, that are, are part of when you apply for senior leadership roles to make sure that we are ready for those as well. Because they are the, they are the things where some people are really good at playing that game, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but they know how to do those things. And for some of us, we are not quite getting that right. So that's another thing that we need to do, invest in ourselves to make sure that we're getting it right. And I mean, I'm going to come back to a few points that you've made there that firstly, you can choose uh, you know the you can choose what to do so for example you can let it go because it's emotionally <coughs> taxing and draining on you and you you need to look after your own health and well-being yeah there is this danger though if you do respond and you respond immediately and you know it has happened to many members of staff they respond immediately mm-hmm. and then you get the the angry black or the angry black female trope from yeah. people, even though they've instigated something to make you react. Yep. Oh yeah, that always that that happens. That happens. Yep. Um, because obviously no one else gets angry. Nobody else gets angry when they, when when they feel upset at work. The only thing is, like I said, that trope is very is very real. It's very real because if you respond or you, you react. Then, then that again, almost you know that tips. Well, there they there, there they go again. And the reality is, you still have to stand up for yourself. And if people don't like you standing up for themselves, that's on them. And again, if they if they do want to kind of exhibit that bias towards you in terms of that is, oh well, there they go. Then at least you know, and then therefore you you challenge. But then you ultimately you move on because it's just not good for your well-being. But it doesn't mean when I mean let it go, I don't mean let it go in terms of unchallenged. You challenge, but then you make a decision after that. Because they some now I I know of people had the experience where they've, they have challenged and people and then the people they've challenged for oh oh actually, and I I know of circumstances where people have then asked for a further conversation about that, and that's where you have real open-minded leaders. Uh, but that's few and far between. But then you've got told to say, how dare you? And then therefore, here we go. It's like a here we go again situation. And then so therefore, people sometimes can be careful. I don't want to show them that because I know that's how they perceive me. But it's not about how you're being perceived. It's about you standing up for yourself. And it's really important that you stand up for yourself. And how people perceive you, that's on them. Your message is the important thing. And I want to pick on something else you said earlier about governors. And, you know, you can end up having ethnic minorities on a governing body. But what if they're in similar positions, first of all? And second of all, what if they don't feel like it's something to be challenged? What if they feel like you're being too sensitive? How would you deal with that? What if those on governorship feel that you're being too sensitive? So, for example, if you've got an ethnic minority, (coughs) because obviously governors, not all governors have had training that um, is suitable um, because obviously some people just turn up to meetings, they've not had the right training. And so they're not even challenging some of these things happening. Because, I mean, if I was a governor, and I have been a staff governor, Adrian, if I'm, 
in on the governing body and I've been a staff governor and I can see that certain members of staff have not been progressed or they're not developing, I would query that. I would want to know what's happening in the school. Why is teaching and learning not improved? Why are the results still low? Why is it um, ethnic minority children are not uh, progressing, for example? Um, I would be interested in all of those things. But sometimes governors who are ethnic minorities fail to pick up on those things at all. Well, there's because there's training, like you said, there's training for governors as well, isn't there? And part of the part of um, part of the the expectation, and it is expectation. If we were to say, look at the Ofsted framework, I don't really want to make that reference. But if you there's there's an expectation for governors and for their for their awareness around all the four aspects of of the the framework. So around the quality of education, about leadership, around personal development, around behaving attitudes. So there's that training, and like I said, if that if if they don't have that training, then they don't know. They're just a person around the table. So there's again, being a governor doesn't necessarily solve it. I've been a staff governor, and I've also been a co-opted governor, where I was a governor at school, as a staff governor, left the school, and then stayed on as a governor. And I think being a staff governor can be also be a, a challenge in itself, uh, because you see things, and then you're. I'm not saying you're restricted, but you you're you're there as a as a as a presence, but not always as a voice. And I would say for, for governors, again, that's about, about the training and development. I know there's a National Governors Association and they have various programs around that, but there's also, there is a lot of training around being an effective governor, just as there is about being an effective leader, just as there is about being an effective teacher, middle leader, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole lot of development around the topics we discussed that really need addressing. Just because you're a black I, governor doesn't necessarily mean you're making a difference. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I would agree with that as well. Um, let's just go back to microaggressions. Let's suppose that um, you've had a microaggression. How can we disarm it? And what if it's from a manager or a senior leader? How can we make sure that we, we empower employees to call it out in a professional manner? Um, I, I think there's various ways of dealing with that. I would... I would send an email uh, to that member of staff and ask for a meeting and I would ask for a meeting with someone else there. If it was some, because I think these things you have to protect yourself as well because sometimes you can have a conversation and that conversation goes unrecorded and then therefore it didn't happen. If that makes sense. And, and I know yes. it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit, that might sound a bit being hypersensitive, but that's the facts. You have to, you have to be prepared to log and keep, um, you know, keep these things Oh, Adrian, I think we've lost you there for a minute. Adrian, can you hear us? Okay, I think we've lost Adrian for a minute. Whilst he's connecting back on, could you just give me... Oh, can you hear me, Adrian? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Yeah, okay, we lost you for a minute. We're not sure what's happened there. I can think you someone tried to ring me. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the brilliance of live radio. Okay, yeah. can you just uh, just go through what you were just saying again? Well, essentially, it's about um, you know you empower yourself, you challenge, but you challenge with someone else there. So you might have the conversation and have it with a member of staff there. And if it's something that's sensitive, you you might then have an email. So so you might do is have a conversation follow up with an email. So you'd have your initial email answer for the conversation. You have the conversation. If it's one that doesn't might not warrant another member of staff being there you would follow up with that take the key points from there and then do an, another email 
Um, these are the kind of things that I've done because you, you need to have your voice heard, but you also need it recorded. I think just a conversation is not necessarily enough, I feel. Okay. Um, we're going to stop there for a minute, Adrian, because I just want to quickly um, just go through some uh, things. If you have been... Um, if you have faced uh, microaggressions in your workplace, I do think it's important for you to keep a record of what's going on, dates and times when these are happening. Um, and like Adrian said, if you are called to a meeting, make sure you have that recorded and there's evidence of it in case you need to use it uh, in the future as well. Adrian, we're going to stop there for a minute. I'm loving talking to you um, and I'm hoping you can stay on for a lot longer because I've got lots more to ask you. We're going to go that's over okay. to our sponsors and we're going to go to the news and then we'll come back to you if that's okay with you. That's 100 fine, yes. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Right, okay. Uh, first up, adverts, and then it's going to be the news. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people-pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course? Or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses? All MALCPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Welsh Government is the first in the UK to make teaching black, Asian and minority ethnic histories mandatory in its schools. The announcement, reported on the Big Issue newsfeed, was made to coincide with the start of Black History Month. The new curriculum is set to be introduced from September 2022, after it is formally signed off next week. This follows the unveiling earlier this week of the statue of Wales' first black head teacher, Betty Campbell. Ms Campbell was the first person to include black history on the Welsh curriculum, teaching pupils about slavery and its legacy, apartheid in South Africa and the way black people contribute to British society. 
Jeremy Miles, Welsh Education Minister, said it's vitally important that our education system equips young people to understand and respect their own and each other's histories, cultures and traditions. We must create an education system which broadens our understanding and knowledge of the many cultures that have built Wales. In 2020, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement prompted new calls for teaching of black history in schools across the UK. The Welsh curriculum will state human societies are complex and diverse and are shaped by human actions and beliefs. It will also include the expectation that learners will develop an understanding of the complex and diverse nature of societies past and present. The Metro is reporting on a story focusing on ARC All Saints Academy in Camberwell, South London, and their decision to ban a number of slang phrases from formal aspects of the curriculum. Phrases like, that's long, meaning something tedious or not worth the effort, and that's a neck, meaning you need a slap for that, as well as fillers such as like and erm, are on the list of phrases that Principal Lucy Fame says are forbidden in some contexts within school. Although she stressed that it was not applicable during social interactions or general use. Instead, she stated the intention was so that it would be used in formal settings to help students understand the importance of expressing themselves clearly and accurately, not least through written language and examinations. The decision by Arc All Saints Academy has sparked further debate and comment from such academics including Dr Marcello Giovanelli from Aston University, who commented that slang has always been at the forefront of linguistic innovation. However, a language consultant at King's College London pointed out that it shouldn't be about good or bad language. It should be about appropriate language for the context. The debate about language, its evolution and change is a continuous one in academic and education circles and, it seems, shows no signs of dying down just yet. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News. Welcome back to this fascinating uh, insight into microaggressions um, and things that are happening within the workplace. Um, as I said earlier, microaggressions uh, aren't just about racism, which is what we're talking about today, but it is also to do with gender, age, sexual orientation, socioeconomic class, disability and religion as well. And people can exist at the intersection of overlapping identities. So, for example, you could be a disabled immigrant um, or it could be intersectional um, via race, gender and disability as well. Now just before the uh, news we were talking about um, how if you are um, if you have caused a microaggression, Adrian was just explaining that it's always good to accept criticism when you're called out um, because these should be seen as learning moments rather than confrontation uh, and, you know, uh, things to do with ego-based leadership as a leader, not just uh, related to uh, microaggressions, but as a leader, you do have to listen to your staff and you do need to take input. And any leader who doesn't feel that they need to do that um, seriously needs to look at their their leadership uh, philosophy and whether they're actually, um, you know, uh, being a real leader or, or being a dictator, really. Um, making sure you're listening with an open heart and mind. Um, and one of the biggest things 
things is that, you know, you need to be able to forgive your staff. So, you know, if they have accused you of something, um, be willing to listen to them, but also forgive them if there has been either miscommunication or the fact that you have been called out on it is something that you actually need to do work on yourself as a leader. Resist the urge to react defensively, because even if it was unintentional, you just don't know what pain you've caused the other person. And when I'm doing my leadership, um, when I'm doing my leadership training, for those of you who don't know and are, who are new listeners, I actually have leadership coaching from Diana Asagi and the Academies for Women's Leadership. And in that session, in those sessions that I've had, um, and I've had it for a whole year now, you have to really, really listen with an empathetic heart. Don't turn around and say to your staff, it was a joke and you didn't mean it because you're invalidating someone and that's not acceptable. And verbally acknowledge your impact, apologise, but don't expect forgiveness either. And ask questions, but don't expect answers. And I've had a message come into the show saying that good leaders are solution focused and reflective. And I would agree with that as well. Otherwise, um, if I was in a leader in that position, and someone had said that to me, I would want to possibly think about doing a 360 to see how staff perceive me. Um, because uh, it is something as leaders that we need to be aware of. Um, Adrian, Hello. Are you still there? Right. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is really important, um, and I just want to go through this with everybody live on the radio. Sometimes <clears throat> you do end up in a toxic school and sometimes other colleagues do see this happening. It's really important, in my opinion, for co-workers from marginalised communities and from uh, white communities, so allies, to actually stand up against it and support the members of staff who are going through these issues. Would you agree or not? Yeah, 100% agree. Because I 100% what agree. Because what often happens, and I'm going to use my union hat on here because I, I've also been a union rep in the past. What usually happens is that these things spiral out of control. There's confrontation and then you have to be the mediator as a union rep. One of the things that's always struck me is that when there are issues within a work environment and the union rep is going out of their way to support members of staff, other colleagues push you forward and then step backwards to say, well, I'm not getting involved in this. It's not my issue. And then you lose your argument and your case because the head teacher or the senior leadership team know that there's nobody backing the person who's bringing the complaint forward with them. What would you say to that, Adrian? Yeah, I agree totally. I, I think there's um, there, needs to be a clear, there needs to be a distinction between those who are supporting you and those who are really supporting you, and that's not that's not to uh, kind of put down any colleagues I may have worked with in the past who have supported me, but there's support and then there's support. So there'll be people who will see it's going on, will acknowledge it's going on, will discuss with you that whatever bias or whatever experience has is going on. They will say, "Oh, that's." It's out of order. I, you know, I can't believe they're treating me like this. But then, when it comes to 
you actually saying, right, I need to actually make this, say, a grievance. And then they'll be like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. So there's, there's support and then there's real support because sometimes people are just, they get concerned in terms of how is this going to affect me? So if I support this member of staff, how are they going to perceive me? Am I, am I really willing and prepared to put my career at this, at this particular school at risk to support someone who's experiencing biases that I actually don't experience, although I can see that's happening? So that it takes a real level of, I would say not bravery, I don't know whether it's bravery or whether you want to call it integrity, to, to say that, uh, yes, I support you and I'm actually, I'm fully behind you. And I think that's where sometimes the 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 kind of the lines can get blurred because I've been in, I've been in a particular situation I can think of well more than one situation where it's been seen and they and it's been identified yeah that's the reason but they're not necessarily willing to go any further with that because you know perhaps they're without taking it looking at external factors they're a single parent and I've got to look after my kids and I can't afford to lose my job um, you know. I've, I've actually got a good job at this school and as much as I understand how you're treating, I don't want to lose my role. I'm, or I'm, I'm looking for promotion within the school and I, it, might, it might impact how they see me. So there's, there's that as well that takes place. So and I, am I, would I be, uh, when I think about my experience, some of my experiences, would I, was I angry at those people? Not, yes and no. Yes and no, because... That's often how it can it can end up. That's how often how it can happen. So therefore, then you are in a danger of of those who identify with your experience saying yes, and then and then and then having your back, and then you almost became you almost look like this kind of homogenous group of people. Look at them all together fighting together when that's not the case because you know there are other people who don't necessarily look like you who actually feel the same but are not willing to take that risk in inverted commas to take it further. Yes, and I think it's really important. I mean, I agree with everything you've said. It's really important to raise awareness um, of microaggressions among co-workers and friends um, yep. because, you know, there is this um, – you need to kind of advocate for organizational and policy changes. So if it is happening to one marginalized group of people, you can guarantee it's happening to other groups as well. And we're imperfect as humans, but inclusion and belonging are so important on an emotional and mental and health and well-being platform. Psychological safety is one of the first things you learn as a leader. You need to make sure your staff are psychologically um, safe in order for them to be productive in the workplace um moving on then um so i've had somebody message in um they were willing okay so this person went through something difficult and said mm -hmm. that they were willing to speak to slt but slt said unless they get uh, they sign a statement with their name on it they won't take it further and despite the co-worker verbally telling slt everything they had witnessed who had also been there the member of staff was impacted by what they saw suffering anxiety because it wasn't taken seriously so mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is that if that member of staff is not willing to support you, then you have to just document everything yourself and just you need to be aware that there is a possibility that you're going to have to handle this yourself rather than um, having someone supporting you. Um, okay, um, moving on.
it's not just microaggressions. We've also got something called micro-insults. So those people who don't know, micro-insults are subtle verbal, non-verbal communication that conveys rudeness, insensitivity, and they demean a person's racial heritage or identity. And you've also got micro-invalidation, which is basically negating a person's thoughts or feelings. And this happens a lot with women. Okay, so mm-hmm. women are told that they're oversensitive. Um, they usually defend the person who did it by saying, that well that's not what he or she meant um uh, your interpretation of my behavior is wrong you know i'm a fair person you're actually invalidating someone's like you said lived experiences now microaggressions the coin was termed in the early 1970s by Professor Chester Pierce. And he was talking about insults and slurs that he witnessed regularly towards black people in the US. So he's a professor of education and psychiatry at Harvard. And women get it all the time. I mean, you know, I'm a female leader. I've heard many times across my career for no reason at all, um, you know, I'm talking in a fact-based manner and I've been told, oh, uh, you're being sensitive or you're being emotional. Uh, and I have to go and correct the person to show them that I'm I'm dealing with facts here. It's not emotion. This is, you know, something that's important. Women also get things like, um, for example, if they're getting married, I expect your priorities will change after marriage. Things like that are yeah. being said to them. Um, if you're an ethnic minority or somebody who isn't capable who isn't um, seen to be capable, uh, wow, you've got a master's degree, uh, could be from the background you're from as well. And the classic, but where are you really from? Insinuating that you're an alien from your own country. I mean, mm-hmm. you speak really good English. Where are you from? Well, hello, mm-hmm. I was born in Britain. I'm <laughs> my parents, for, for me, Adrian, I find it um, hilarious because obviously my parents are Pakistani and they were born in Pakistani, but they came... Pakistan, but they came yeah. over here um, a very long time ago when they were children and they went to schools here as well. So for me, I've got more connection with this country than I do with Pakistan because I've only been to Pakistan once. So when I've had those comments said to me, but where are you really from? I, I have to laugh because I'm like, well, I'm just like you lot. I'm British. <laughs> yeah. it, it just seems uh, it just seems really ridiculous. Um And obviously, it is discrimination. And I just wanted to highlight to my colleagues in the profession, um, one comment or one microaggression is enough for a claim for a tribunal. So if it's a protected characteristic, so if it's related to age, disability, religion, marriage, gender, sexual orientation, whether you're trans, whether somebody's transgender, pregnancy, maternity, if there is an element of unfair treatment or dignity is being violated in a humiliating, hostile way, then that is that could lead to a tribunal. So please don't dismiss this as something, you know, something minor. It is something that can be a uh, can be used against you legally and my question to you Adrian is is it best to have a diversity and inclusion policy in an organization oh yeah 100% it's important to have that and um, uh, coming back to what you said about microaggressions can result in a, a tribunal that's why that's why I kind of earlier said about it being micro it's 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 not micro because if it's it's almost like the snowball effect. If it's if it's continuous and sustained, 
you know, those things have huge impacts on people's lives, their well-being, their careers, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of, um, so I forgot the actual question, sorry, because I was, what was it? My sorry, question what, was, um, uh, is, it, is it best to have a diversity and inclusion policy in an organisation? Oh, yes. Because some people yes. think it is and some people think it isn't. So you're saying yes. 100% yes. I mean, uh, diversity and inclusion is, I mean, it should be, with, it should be embedded within the equalities um, policy of, of a school. I mean, we've got the Equalities Act of 20, 2010 and your diversity and inclusion policy should, should um, em, well, not, em, I'm not embrace, but in, c- cover those, those key factors around that. So uh, there's, because then you're, you're talking about, I mean, we, we've got this reference, where, for, forget offset, but generally within the curriculum around, around British values and they should be um, in school. We could have a, a different conversation around that term in itself, but I mean, British values are just, these are core values of, that people should have full stop. But within within that within that that reference of British values, that speaks to diversity and inclusion. So that I feel there should be a policy or the equalities policy of a school should fully in, embrace those key aspects of diversity and, and inclusion. And why shouldn't and why shouldn't it? Why shouldn't it? I mean, we when you apply for a job, there's always that reference to um, any place being an equal opportunities employer. Um, so if you're an equal opportunity employer, then within how your organisation is run, you, that's, that's, that, that, those equal opportunities should be evident and that should be in a policy. Um, the reason why I'm asking you, obviously, because there's some people who think, yes, there should be, for exactly the same reasons that you've just said. It eradicates harassment um, and it, it, obviously the Equality Act of 2010, I think it is, is yeah. what's really important here and making sure you feel safe and secure in the working environment that you are. But there's some people who, who are against having these policies and they say that it's because it increases people's sensitivity and it can cause cause conflict in the workplace by having informal complaints or grievances which shouldn't have gone that far and my 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 response to that Adrian always is that if you are an effective leader and if you are a leader who listens carefully and has a good relationship with your staff then you should be able to have outstanding conflict resolution skills for these things to not develop further and not get to the stage where you have to you know threaten legal action or go to a tribunal yeah you you need to have these things in place but then also you need to have your ears to the ground as a leader to to know what's going on and how people feel because some people might suppress it for so long and then when it comes along people may not be aware even if they were the ones who were carrying it out so you know if you're a list you know a, the best leaders are listening leaders um, and the best leaders are learning leaders because leadership isn't about telling people what to do. Le- leadership is about developing others to be leaders. But to de- in order to develop others to be leaders, you have to be listen. You have to you have to listen, and you have to also be learning yourself. Because leadership isn't something where you think, "Oh, I've got it now." You've never got it. You're always learning. So if you cons- if you accept that you are a learning leader, and in order to be an effective learner, you have to be a good listener. Then it, you know that that will affect everyone within the organisation, within the within the school environments. So that in fact that that will impact your staff and your students. And I want to come on to this um, idea of unconscious bias training because loads of organisations, not just the education sector, is having unconscious bias training right now. Do you feel it works? 
Um, I mean, I, I think there is a need for bias training. Um, I think there's a need for, but when we call it training or awareness, I would probably more point to it to be an awareness than training. I mean, my mum herself has done um, uh, quite a bit of this work within the local authority. She now um, does consultancy work for. So, and the conversation I've had with her is uh, not so much around training, but it's around awareness. Some people, amazingly, do not uh, do not have that awareness that they have bias. So it's around raising awareness. And, and again, if you are someone who's open to learning and open to your own development, you will listen. There, there are schools I know within the local authority that my mum works in who have actually come to the local authority and said, we would actually like some help with this. And they've been genuinely um, open about it. And there have been others that are, are not saying, well, we're, we're, we're not having that. We're fine as we are. They may be fine. They may not be fine. I think there needs to be um, conversations about awareness. And if you're not willing to have those conversations around awareness, then where have you been? Like I said, we can go back to the, the outcomes and the social media outbursts following the, the, the finals and what happened there. That, that tells a very clear story that, there's, that the issue remains and that there are far too many people exhibiting biases which they shouldn't have, or if they, if they do have them, they should be challenged and they should be dealt with. So if I was an organisation that's not willing, not necessarily not willing to have it, because there are schools that are, who are who are, are very inclusive for all staff and, and, are, and are very good at what they do, so they might not need that. But I think awareness is um, a, a key thing going forward because it's not right where you have... Um, uh, you know, an, an ethnically diverse school, any school, to be fair, because the British society is diverse. That's the other thing. You don't necessarily need to have black senior leaders or black minority ethnic or uh, black Asian senior leaders in the schools where there are black Asian students. We are in a diverse society. You know, we have white head teachers in what might be almost all black and Asian areas. We can have black head teachers and Asian teachers in all white areas. It's just about accepting the fact that Britain is a diverse society as therefore people need to own that and accept it rather than fight and challenge it. But, you know, we could talk about things like Brexit and uh, why some people voted for that. And, you know, some might have voted for economic reasons, others didn't. You know, so, um, you know, that, that in itself. And I uh, think I, I recall an interview with Benjamin Zephaniah talked about as soon as Brexit was done, he was subjected to abuse on the street because people felt that they could talk to him in a certain way. You know, so when, when you know, things... Uh, things need to change, but things need to change in terms of they need addressing. And it's about awareness and also awareness and challenge. Because some people are aware, but they're going unchallenged. Yeah, agreed. Um, so just, uh, just to summarise, let's just suppose you are in a position where you have been on the receiving end of a microaggression. These are the kind of uh, things that um, I would recommend you to um to take note of. Firstly, if you have been through a microaggression, respond to it. So don't ignore it, but decide when to respond. And don't do it when your emotions are still raw. So let them die down first and then deal with it and challenge it then. Mm -hmm. Also discern whether it is worth responding to or not. If it's something completely inappropriate, definitely go for it. If it's something that is um, something that you feel you can let go, then let it go for the time being, but do keep a record of the incident. Disarm the person. So call and challenge out. Um, and then obviously you have to make it clear that there needs to be um, 
a difficult conversation that has to take place. And that doesn't necessarily have to be organized by the other person. You can be proactive and organize that meeting yourself to explain to that person how you felt and why it's happened. And finally, define the microaggression, get to the bottom of it. Even before responding or challenging, ask them, why did you say that? What did you mean by it? And why have you made that assumption? So it's always good to have these conversations openly because it allows both parties to understand what's happening and it allows you to build up a picture over time, make sure that you've got documents, times, stories, dates, everything written down and make sure it's always fact-based, not emotion-based and also speak to others because if it's happening to you, the chances are these people are possibly doing it to other people in the working environment and therefore you would have to triangulate the information for hard evidence to take it further. Um, Empower other employees to call it out too and monitor your school policies and practices as well. Um, A really good idea that I was reading, Adrian, is to have an anonymous box so that staff could put down their their concerns um, with things like microaggressions or complaints so that senior leaders can actually read through those um, and then therefore nobody's uh, roles or you know performance management or you know anything like that would be affected but if a grievance does take place in a school as a leader you have to be aware that grievances cost talent and reputation. So whilst you're doing it to one member of staff and thinking you're getting away with it, those member of staff move to other schools and they discuss it with people. I've never understood in the education sector why some members of staff feel it's appropriate to bully in the workplace when those people are the most effective word of marketing wherever they go. I mean, if you're working in a school or environment, you're going to tell people what it was like when you were working there. I've never understood that at all. And our generation are not the generation to tolerate this anymore. Our grandparents' generation, because I'm at the age, I'm, I'm coming into my 40s now, my grandparents had to go through this during their generation. But our generation are not going to tolerate it and we're going to fight back with our voices or our pens or through activism we're going to make sure we get ourselves heard and it's something that schools need to be aware of because there is a talent drain within our profession we are losing members of staff and this is something that we all need to be aware of adrian what do you think we should do next moving forward in terms of healing the next generation so that we can move together in a direction where everybody is inclusive and psychologically safe? I think, uh, I mean, if we look back to last summer, I think the thing that I'm finding with young people, I think about with my own children, I think there seems to be a, a more awareness. If we look at the aggression towards, I know there was, there was young footballers, but I would say the, I'm not. I'm not saying it's perfect. Far from it. But if you think about the the protests last summer, there were young, a whole bunch of young white uh, people and older ones, you know, marching alongside. So I think um, 
invest in the in the in the younger generation and also if I think about my experience in my in my current school and many schools, the students have been almost the least of my worries. I'm not saying there isn't the heart rates up, but they've been the least of my worries. Often it might be that might be a parent or it might be people in community, but it's investing in the young people because they are the ones who uh, seem to be and appear to be more invested in each other, in each other's cultures, in each other's experiences than perhaps older generations were. My grandparents were the Windrush generation. Um, my mum and my aunts and uncles came over six, seven years later, as was the norm for people from the Caribbean. And, and my brothers and I were born in the 70s. And, you know, our experiences were not as bad as the grandparents, but they were certainly uh, bad enough. But moving forward, I think the important thing is to invest in the, in the young people and actually listen to them and pay attention to how they behave and generally interact with each other i'm not saying they don't see color they very much do and they i'm if you were all you have to do like i work in a secondary is to walk around you can hear some of the conversations that they have um, at break times around i mean i i, I was flabbergasted last year when there was a bunch of year 10s talking about culture and deep, people's different cultures it was really deep and it wasn't because i was there because i was airwigging um so it's just you know, understand that the young people are the ones that we need to invest in. And then also for, as adults, we need to probably listen to them and watch them a bit more in terms of how they interact with each other. And for those who are not um, buying into the uh, what should be an inclusive culture that we should have, should probably watch our young people a lot more and see how they interact. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that message. Um, to finish off, um, as a result of my research into what you said um, in The Guardian earlier this year, um, I found a podcast by Aditya Chakrabarti and Anushka Astana, and they were talking about whether racism still exists in schools in the UK. And they said that 82% of black women have had their hair touched or talk, talked about, and 62% of people thought there was still racism in our schools. So racial literacy among staff is needed. Many teachers do not have lived experiences because people's experiences are conditional and textured by ethnicity and teachers need to be aware of that. And in 2020 to 2021, our school population is made up of 26 of black and minority ethnic pupils. We are known as the global majority but it's not reflected within the staff body. 93% of heads are still white British. And the Running Need Trust has lots of data and information on this. And one of the things that they say is that Britain is not teaching um, their own history properly with regards to colonialism. And that's why um, diversifying the curriculum um, and all of those things are important. Um, and you know, it, there's so many fantastic organisations out there right now on Twitter that I see regularly who have made major progress in these areas. So I think it's really worth checking out those organisations um, on Twitter. Some like Diverse Educators is a really good one. Um, and... Um, I think it's just really, really important that we need to make sure that we are keeping this topic alive and running. Um, and I will share links. Um, I'll tweet them out. Um, 
and it like i just said it's diversity is not just about race it is about other other um groups of marginalized people as well so adrian thank you so much for coming on to the show it's been no wonderful problem. to hear all this information and really pick your brains about it. And I've had loads of comments in from listeners today who've said that they really like the show. Uh, you know, thank you to everybody who has been liking the show, sharing the show. Um, all of your messages have been uh, acknowledged uh, and welcomed as well. Um just to finish off, I have run out of time, but I did want to talk about the topic of uh, white feminism and how it betrays women of colour. I will do another session on that as well. Um, and just an announcement to my listeners that due to other commitments, my show is going to go down to once every two weeks from now on. And I will advertise it so you can see when I'm on next. Um, and that's because my, my workload has increased uh, at the moment. And so I'm going to have to uh, step down from doing a weekly show. Um, next up is Graham. Khalil's back on. And we also have Tom HB joining us for a all for an awesome Sunday lineup. Thank you for all your comments. It's been really, really fun this morning. Thank you so much, Adrian. Take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.